Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. This is part two that we started last week. We were just kind of diving into some of the deeper things that Corey has been presented in our class at Coburn Road entitled The Saying, What Does the Book of Mormon Teach? You can find these videos at YouTube. Go and watch them. This is just kind of talking about this and that that has been covered in class, but really talking about how does this change our relationship with God and our heart, and how does it apply to us today? We hope you enjoy part two. Thank you. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. When we sit down to learn and to study, what question is important for us to ask ourselves? (laughs) <laughs> you know, a friend showed me this once years ago, and, um, you know, there's this story in Ether of the brother of Jared praying to God for light in their boats and doesn't know how, you know, he, he doesn't know what's going to happen next. We might because we've read the story. Right. But as he's praying to God the Father and sees this finger appear before him, there's a lesson in this story because God asks maybe with this little feigned ignorance, hey, did you see anything else, you know, while you're praying? But the brother of Jared's response is telling, and he says, no. But then he says, show yourself unto me. You know, in those words, show yourself unto me, there's four words. I think there's a powerful, powerful lesson for us to that. That's the question. I mean, God didn't reluctantly show himself. He he wanted, and he wanted that question asked of him because he wanted to say the very famous words. He says, hey, I'm Jesus Christ, right? He's been talking to God who's been speaking to him in first-person God, and all of a sudden he says, show yourself unto me. And who appears before him? He says, I am Jesus Christ, and this is the body of my spirit. You know, and we've been talking all along. You know, this is a beautiful revelation of theology, if you will, in that sense, but leaving that aside, your question, I think, of what should we ask? I think God wants us to all ask that question. Lord, would you reveal yourself to me, your, your love, your patience, your um, your ability to endure hardship, the lessons you learned when you had flesh and blood are things I need to learn, and how, how can I learn from you? You know, what what would you show me? Some One time, I can't remember when it was, I don't know, you know, you have people in your life who mean a lot to you at times, and one of my mentors was my, um, I didn't realize she was a mentor. I guess I, I look back now and realize what a mentor he was. But my maternal grandfather was just someone I just really, really adored. And uh, he was nice and kind and sweet. And he was a minister and he, he loved the Lord. But now I look back so much more fondly because I, I realize how lucky I was to have him as a role model. And I wished I would have asked more questions <laughs> growing up because he, you know, he wasn't anyone to ever force his point of view. He was just a happy guy to go on a walk with here, sing a song and play his harmonica, talk about the Lord. Well, if someone said, Hey, you know, now that you, you know, your grandfather's been gone many years. If you could talk to your grandfather again, this is how the question was posed to me. What would you, what would you ask him? You know? And I thought about that and I guess I would ask Jesus the same thing. You know, I, I so, cause someone said, well, would you ask like, Hey, what, tell me about heaven or what's, what's this and this like, for me, the question I would ask is, 
what's the most important thing I need to know right now? You know, as like, maybe it's things I don't see or maybe things I don't understand. Where am I going wrong that if I would fix this one thing, I, I could fix a lot of things, you know? And it's like that attitude, like, I want to sit here and listen. I don't want to talk. I want you to just tell me and I'll be open to advice you give me. I think that's an important question to ask God too. Like, just God, can you just tell me what I need to know? What, what, what can I work on? You know? So I feel like we've learned so, so there's been so much information over the last, well, I think I can't imagine where your brain's at finding all of these things in the Book of Mormon that God's shown you about its nature, its poetry, its makeup, uh, the fact that it's just, it's a book that was written by the spirit of God through man, you know, prophecies and angels have came and put the, you know, angels have came and talked to men and they said, I learned this from an angel last night and they write it down. It's this direct revelation from heaven about who God is. And uh, I was thinking on the way home from church today, so how do, how do we just pause and try to assimilate all of this information that's been given so far and bring it down to a heart level of how does this affect how I view God, my Father in heaven, and my relationship with him and with other people? And how does this message that, that, that we've looked at, the skeleton or the, the overall construct of it, how does this... Uh, work into my heart, the tuggings in my heart, like you said earlier. So let me start with just, this is pretty neat. So my son is uh, learning to make knives, Corey, and, and they have this thing called a maker's mark. And uh, his teacher has a stamp made. There's actually companies that make stamps for maker's marks. And when he's done with a knife or in the process of the knife, he heats up one part of the tang and he puts his stamp in and it's not his initials or anything. It's, it's like a symbol. And he showed his, as a, his teacher, something to do with a native American. Uh, the name of his knives is wave Walker knives. And it has to do with some type of Indian. I believe if I'm wrong, forgive me, we'll, we'll correct it. But so Weston has been thinking about what kind of maker's mark am I going to use for my knife? What, how am I? Wow. And he's, he's right now in the process of making his first commission knife. He's got a guy that once, once gave him a, a piece of a chair that his grandpa uh, built or his father built, and he wanted him to take that and make it into the handle. So he's making this person, and he said, but I want him to put his mark on it. Wow. And he doesn't have a mark yet. And so we've, we've been designing things, and it has to be simple enough because it's, it's like going to be like a millimeter big, right? It has right, to, it's right. going to be very small, and yet it has to have meaning. And do you know what, what he ended up coming up with? It's pretty neat. The symbol for the ox and the staff right next to it. Oh. And he wants to call his knives the uh, the oxen, uh, oxen staff knives. Oh, wow. <laughs> because that symbolizes our father. That was the Hebrew symbol for what? The father? For God, yeah. The for God. For God. Yep. yep. The, the ox head meant yep. strength. Yep. And the staff meant? The authority. The yeah. authority. The strong authority. That's Strong good. authority. Oxen staff knives. Oh, so that's no. so. Then he's got a, a way he, to he share the he gospel. Didn't do the sticky water. <laughs> no, we wanted to do ox water or whatever. For no, we looked at a, 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 the one with the hand leading the through the water because it kind of looked like a W for Weston. Yeah, right. but um, that's what he settled on. He he came out the other day and drew it on the refrigerator. We get a little whiteboard. He said, "Dad, this is this is what I want to do." So, how does that symbol you know affect? our relationship with God, just 
just oh, from man. the words from the words that you brought out, like El Shaddai and Ox and, and that, all of that, Corey, how does that how do we step then out of that book and think about the knowledge that the Hebrews had when they first understood who God was and bring that into our life today? How can we wipe out all of these other maybe false images of God and then I'll bring one one other thing up. A quote was mentioned by Arthur Oakman uh, today, and and I don't like this quote. And this is nothing against the speaker. It was said in a context. I get it. Um, it's like we would do anything for our children, that kind of thing. But Arthur said, I think one time in a sermon, "Who do you think suffered more on the cross, the son or the father?" Thinking about the father watching his son suffer, and that again takes us back into this um, vision of God as this man who then had this boy and but it, it leaves out the whole Hebrew nature of being one yes yeah. and I've never understood uh, a lot of the um, Baptist evangelical they go into the whole suffering and right, right. watching your son suffer and and, and you trying to get this emotional context of what it's like for me and my son but I just don't think we can make that parallel because God is his nature is so different exactly but how does that change our relationship with him and i don't know if there's an answer that i need you to say i'm just thinking out loud well uh, you know here's one of the things that has come to a, a different understanding for me and you know this one of the ten commandments even said uh you know don't take god's name in vain and i i know we've probably mentioned it from time to time that you know in the american culture that was taken as a um Oh, don't say G-O-D in front of some other four-letter word, you know. And, and then if I'm not doing that, well, if I'm not cussing or whatever, I'm not taking God's name in vain, so to speak. And to the Hebrews, had nothing to do with it. And it, what what's interesting is there is this Hebrew belief that whoever names you owns you. You know, the, a slave would be named by, by their master, and then they would also have their ear punched or do different things to, to show who owned them. But, like, when Daniel goes into Nebuchadnezzar's Gentile kingdom, you know, his, his name and his friend's name, Daniel and the Mishael and the others, are changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the guys, those aren't their Hebrew names. Those were their Gentile given names because Nebuchadnezzar was putting his mark on them, right? He's putting his stamp on them say no i own you now and you see god what 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 is beautiful in the scriptures is you can look up in the book of mormon to take god's name and what again king benjamin points this out is that when you come unto god you take his name upon you but it's not just the name like I've heard some people say, hey, now you become Corey Jesus Christ Stark. It's like, no, his name means that you represent him. And so by taking his name upon us, we're saying we're willing to represent God. That's why the opposite, to take his name in vain, means don't say you're going to represent me in life, Corey, and then go just act like anyone else in the world. That's That's the sin. That's the sin, as I've said through my covenant that I'm witnessing unto you, O God, the Eternal Father, that I'm willing to take upon me your name, right, and and have your Spirit to be with me, and and this is the, this is the greater aspect of this. So coming back to this mark, you talk about, you know, what what could we do? Is one is that we realize 
when we take on God's name, Jeff Benner points this out. He said, it's not that you've been given even a name of Christ. He said that that you are to reflect the character of God and that he's putting his character in you by his spirit. And That's we, yeah, baptism of spirit. Right. And we've still got this ability to rebel against that because we're, we're free. That's the problem. And that's the good thing. But this idea that um, we've taken his name means that we are now representing him by our actions. And when we keep his commandments, we will always have his what to be with us, his spirit. That's what he says. I give you in return. But so, so that's a lot of this right now is that, you know, I think to keep in the forefront of our mind that taking his name upon us means more than just saying, well, I got baptized or I'm a member of this church or this group or whatever. It's, it's deeper, it's broader, it's wider than that, that, um, and, and this is why communion, you know, you, you get down to the nitty gritty that people have argued over ultimately, you know, I don't, I don't know that the that the difficulties that like restoration groups have brought up between themselves and all this about, ah, we don't accept their baptism or whatever. Well, in the end, what it comes down to is that those who have been baptized have witnessed to God that they are willing to take upon themselves the character of God and represent that. Now, the scriptures talk about being baptized with authority, and so sometimes we want to rep- we want to focus on the authority part more than the witness part. You know, my job is I'm witnessing to God, and someone else's job is to baptize me. But in the end, I would have to say, if you put the two in a balance, what is God going to tip more? Is He going to negate someone's baptism, for instance, because of the authority, even though their heart was a hundred percent right? You know, this is kind of a sticky question. But in the end, the the question comes down to this: when people are taking communion. Have they truly taken upon them the name of Christ, the character of Christ, the personality of Christ? And and that's what ultimately we're witnessing when we participate. It's like, I'm going to remember you and your character and your and your purpose for me in life. And, and, and it's only the people who have come to God in baptism, and it's only the people who've been renewed by the Holy Ghost, been given that gift of the Holy Ghost, who can even claim that. Because if you haven't done that yet, um, you know, that's why circumcision was this irreversible process in the skin of that you had to you had to do this this was the mark and there's no real going back you know once you've done it you know i heard this in the bible project and i never knew this aspect of that before i thought about it but what what did abraham do uh god told abraham you're gonna have a child and and they laughed right sarah laughed because she was old and that God made a promise, a covenant with him that that what would happen? His his seed would be numbered, and he would bless the earth through his seed. Right. And then what did what did Abraham do uh, to show God maybe that he didn't trust that covenant with his wife? Yeah, he goes on. Well, his wife suggests, why don't you go in with my maid and right. have, a, have a child with her? So that? he he used his thing that God gave him to <laughs> sin against God and have a... So what did God do to help him remember the covenant? Yeah. That, he had to cut the foreskin off of his... <laughs> yeah. And once again, we're in waters. I didn't see this coming, you know, yeah, an hour yeah. ago. PG podcast. Right. right. So he had to... The, the very thing he used to uh, defile uh, the covenant or to say, I'm going to take things into my own hands and make this happen because you're not powerful enough god we all do it not not blame that that's a token of that because i always wonder like what a weird thing to yeah like, that's yeah. what i gotta do yeah, because right. god's saying 
you don't go out and make your own way to pipe. I told you I was going to, and so now you're going to make a covenant and cut the foreskin off. It's going to be painful to realize that you are owned by, like, we are in relationship. Wow. That's really fascinating because taking that a step further, you know, I, I never considered I that. I never either. No, but what's interesting is that, so he ends up with two sons, one of them born to the slave woman, one of them born to the free woman, but the slave woman represents, ultimately, she's cast out with her son, uh, you know, Ishmael, who becomes a father of 12 children and many nations, the Arab nations come yep. from him. But this, this idea, though, she represented the old Mosaic law. Like like you said, hey, I'm going to take this into my hands. This is going to be kind of like martial law or whatever now, too. Her and her son represented this Mosaic law, which is why later in Galatians, it's it. Paul writes, he cast out the bondwoman and her son because the, the old law of the flesh was the Mosaic law, which was replaced by the law of Christ. So Sarah and their son Isaac represent this law of Christ, born to the free woman, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 Isaac or Ishmael born to the slave woman. It was like God's two peop two sets of, you know, people. He had mm-hmm. this people who had to live under this bondage and he had this people who lived under freedom. He wanted us all to have the freedom. That's that's why she was physically cast out. That's, you know So that parallel of Abraham uh uh, doing that with the bondwoman to to try to fulf- to do it his own way became the that represented the mosaic law. Yep. And then uh, God says, "You don't want you know it's not the circumcision of your flesh, but it's the circumcision of your heart." Yes. And that's that's what you have to circumcise. That's the new covenant. So exactly. A lot of parallels and exactly. <laughs> and Moses is even teaching that and preaching that in the desert. He said, I think it's Deuteronomy six where he says, Hey, you know, the day is going to come when you circumcise your heart. And I'm sure all the Israelites were wondering, how are we going to do that? You know? Ouch. <laughs> you know, but that, because they didn't understand, but yes, exactly. The parallels on every level. And, and you're right. So, so men taking, you know, the name. Men taking the name, but men also uh, disregarding God's promises and doing things on their own. The whole the whole Mosaic law, it says, was given because of disobedience, because Israel was stiff-necked, had their own ideas about stuff. So, again, we see this on every level. But Jesus, from the beginning, wanted us to live on, on his laws, which that's why the whole, the whole uh, issue of the Mosaic law had to be fulfilled in Christ so that we could, we could live in his ways. Well, let me, let me ask you, Corey, about two words. There's, there's a couple of things I want to touch on in this episode, two words that we've used many times in the Book of Mormon, and I wanted us to really think again about how do these two words affect my relationship with how I see my Savior, and, and more importantly, how he wants to reveal himself to me in my heart with the ultimate goal of trusting him more and thus being able to love other people more. Because it always has to start. If I can't completely trust my God, then I can't ever freely give myself to other people. Mm-hmm. So, mercy and justice. We've talked about this quite a bit, and it becomes, it can become like some of those words where you say you have to have a changed heart, and that just, we don't ever want that to go over our head because ultimately, as, as in, was in the sermon last Sunday, ultimately, that's the question we should be asking. Is my heart changed? If it's not, what am I doing wrong and what do I need to do to allow the Lord to change my heart? Because it has to be a heart that represents him, that looks like him to, to be able to be cleansed in the kingdom. And so what about mercy and justice? 
and this word parallel and how the Book of Mormon, you, last week in class you put up a whole list of words that were parallels, righteousness, and talk to me about this idea of opposites and mercy and justice. Yeah, this begins to be the foundation that, you know, the fact that Lehi is teaching his children this, some of them who may have been very young at the time, this idea that things like everything in life that's important is probably on one of these parallels is something that we should know and understand. And I want to point out when, when you say Lehi was teaching his children, at one point he says, my firstborn in the wilderness, right, Jacob, Right. he was telling him, teaching Jacob, and later on we hear Jacob give some of the most beautiful language of the Holy One of Israel and atoning and, and, and saving us. He really understood the power of the blood of Jesus Christ Amen. later Amen. on. But we know that he got that teaching from Lehi because Lehi says, my firstborn in the wilderness, he was teaching him at a young age. Yes, And so we also have to uh, come to this point where we understand that atoning blood and have such hope and satisfaction and freedom to love other people in that blood because we don't have to ever worry about lifting ourselves up because we're so accepted by God. Our identity is in God. It's in Jesus and not anything else. And so we're just free to love and give people because we have no worries of, of our own salvation. You know, that's so true. Th- this lesson about Jesus came to Jacob, this young child who Lehi is teaching at that same time too, with all these parallels, he he teaches about Jesus and that you know this mercy and justice are are part of this, but I think even as greater greater is this idea. And just reading from Lehi's words directly here, this is the second book of Nephi, chapter one, and it's um, uh, it, it it starts off how God is unchangeable. It's like sixty five. The spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the way is prepared from the fall of man, and salvation is free. You know, our choice is free. Salvation is free. God doesn't change. There's a process. And so he begins to say, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. Remember our enticement conversation. Well, Mm -hmm. it's like, hey, God has given us instruction. So, yeah, we might be enticed, but we have enough information to know how to make a choice. And so... Where he says, where he goes with this is leading up to Jesus. And, and it's just a couple of verses later, but he says, so everything is set. We are free. The way is prepared. God hasn't changed. There's a law given. But, by the, but what law he's talking about, he says, and by the law, no flesh is justified, or by the law, men are cut off. You know, this law that we got cut off out of God's presence also, this law of Moses they were living under. He, he talks about this in the next couple of verses with Jesus. And, and so by the temporal law, they were cut off, and also by the spiritual law, they perish from that which is good and become miserable forever. So, so right here, you know, we're talking about mercy and justice. Everything about this scripture has nothing to do with so much mercy and justice yet. It has everything to do with the consequence of our choices. Because, of, because we broke God's laws temporally and spiritually, we're cut off from forever. Now, from that, we can either experience God's mercy or God's justice. But to make that happen, and this is where, you know, you talk about the change of heart and everything. This is the the crux of it right here, is that wherefore redemption or the way back cometh through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Now, this is important to see that Lehi is teaching 
the fact that we're in this state, but the only way back is through the Holy Messiah. And then he says, for he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of these laws, these spiritual laws that have been broken, these temporal laws that have been broken, to all who have a broken and contrite spirit. And unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. And so that's, yeah, just give those references real quick again. Yeah, so, so people want to look them. Second right, Nephi. Second Nephi, chapter one. And this is in the RLDS for yeah, 70, 71, 72. The whole, the whole, the whole thing he gets at, and this comes back to your question now, Mike, is that so? So what do we do? You know, we talk about this change of heart, this mercy and justice. It ties well into that chapter in Ether that we read from, where it says, "I give unto you weakness, weakness that you can, that you will be humble, but men that choose to be humble and call upon me, I make these weak things strong." This is what he's saying. He said, "Hey, we're already cut off. Uh, that's a that's weakness. All right." Now the choice is, will you be humble? And there, there he states in, in the same words, but with a greater connotation, those who are broken and contrite, those who choose to humble themselves before me, he offers a sac- himself a sacrifice for your sin. You know, that's what he says. He offereth himself a sacrifice to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and contrite spirit. Or in other words, to say all those who just come and humble themselves I, before me. I think from the culture I grew up in and continue to be, to be a part of, I think it would be great if a sh- great shift was made that we put more emphasis and, more in, and work together to understand more the power of the atonement and the blood of Christ and its power to completely cleanse us and transform us and less emphasis on I need to be doing this and this and this. Yeah. yeah. Because the only thing I need to be doing from what I'm reading in these scriptures is understanding more and more the reality of of my weakness, my inability to overcome sin on my own, through my own power, through my own will, um, and that even my choices have to be enticed by the Holy Spirit and over enable in enticed by the Holy Spirit in order for me to overcome the evil that's presented before me as well. Yes. Everything has to come from the power of Jesus, the power of the Father. And that understanding, that um that hum- that humility is tied completely to weakness. Understanding that God gave us weakness for a reason. Humility is completely tied to that. There's a lot of ways we can, you know, think that we're humbling ourselves. But it comes down as as was given in the sermon last week, asking the questions: Am I doing the right thing? Is my heart right? Am, am I still continuing in this sin? Where am I at with you, Lord? Do I understand your atonement? That that scripture in the Book of Mormon. Corey, the culture in in the church, we we were asked by a good friend last weekend. Have you ever gotten any flack about you know your views on uh, Section seventy six or eternity or the glories? Oh, yeah. And I realized that I don't think I've ever taken a really just plain, hard, straightforward stance on that or anything, but. I feel like I'm in a place now more so than I was a year or two ago that uh, that's just such a 
a, a bad teaching, the way we understand eternity and the atonement, that Jesus Christ can never atone for for my sins uh, above and beyond what, um, I, how do I even say it, uh, what I deserve, or that, that there's some other standard out there that yeah. says you you were pretty righteous or you, you were somewhat righteous or you had good days and bad days, and so this is where you're going to end up. And, and you talk about parallel is two lines right next to each other that's that's where going on and on forever right right it's either one or the other those that's the language lehi uses here where he says there's either happiness affixed or there's misery affixed there's there's a righteous reward affixed sealed mm-hmm. to it or there's damnation affixed but there's nothing in between and you're right you know we've we've mistaught that but i, I didn't want to interrupt your, your train of thought by saying that no i just um but they're a parallel, like you say, and that, that's the whole idea of the Book of Mormon's message is that everything is a parallel, and there's one choice, and there's two opposite outcomes. So let me, let me say it this way. I believe that there has to come a choice. There has to come a time where the message of the Book of Mormon about mercy and justice has to be understood correctly in order for us to have a right relationship with Jesus and yeah. for that relationship to produce uh, the correct result, which is eternal life with him. Yes, and it has to stem from um, openly desired humility before God, not just a transient thing, uh, but but a pure, like, being broken, the contrition that Scripture talks about, having that become maybe the, the foremost aspect of it, not in a weird way, but just the fact that we are nothing without God. You know, I can put a, a little story behind this. When I was in college one year when the RLDS uh, conference was going on, um, at the same time, the Temple Lot Church, who had their small building on the Temple Lot right across from the big RLDS church, um, they were having a conference at the same time. And so... I didn't really know anything about the Temple Lot Church. I knew, you know, Bicker tonights and Hedrickites and different people. And I, I was acquainted with the history, but I'd never really participated. So being who I thought, you know, I'm the member of the, the right church, whatever. I remember, you know, we, we have the big building over here, right? We have thousands and thousands. But I walked across one night when they were having their conference and they were having a worship service. And it was a, a church building, you know, not a whole lot larger than the church I grew up in, in back home. But... When I went in there that night, I could still remember this, that every time the people prayed, they were they were down on their knees. And it, what struck me was that, you know, here I was thinking, well, yeah, we're the right church by, you know, these legal reasons and by these other things and all that stuff. But I looked at these people, and they were humble. I mean, it's like we, growing up, you only knelt in prayer on communion Sunday because, and then some people just kind of scooted to the edge of their bench too, you know, it wasn't even mm-hmm. But these people were like, down, you know, with their with their heads down on the ground, just praying just for their normal prayers and their worship service. And I remember thinking, I was so taken back by that. I wanted to be part of that. And it, it changed my prayer life, too, to realize, you know, uh, there was maybe this arrogance in my life where I felt like all I had to know was I was in the right church. And here these people had the same Book of Mormon as me, and they were—it wasn't a false act of humility. They were—they were—, they were 
contrite before God and, and maybe worshiping him with more awe than I had ever considered in, in their very acts. And I, and I know you can take that to extreme. You can go to, you know, a half a dozen churches within 10 miles of most people anymore where you'll see people raising their arms and doing everything. And, and some of that's genuine and some of it's just the way we do stuff at, at church. It's not so much the physical expression, but the attitude of the heart is, I guess, what I noticed felt different among those people there when I was with them. And I was touched by that. And so I look at this, and it always comes back to the attitude of the heart. And and I look at the hardships in my life that I resist, and I think, you know, I can probably resist this until I die, but yet at the same time, maybe God wants me to reach a greater level of humility that I'm not willing to, you know, and I continue to endure through hardships or of, of different types. But in the end, he wants to bring all of us back to this state where before him we fully acknowledge our unworthiness before him from genuine from the heart and if we if we resist that if we resist that we we will end up becoming on the other side of the parallel uh filthy still the yes. book of mormon yes what i at some point as a people if we want to be a righteous people that really truly have the love of God in our heart enough to, to, to have an effect on the world, um, we have to decide if we are going to hold to the erroneous uh, aspect of eternal life and judgment that we've taught in, in, for years, or are we going to believe the message contained in the Book of Mormon that says, you know, the atoning blood of Christ, that only those can be saved, those exactly. that are repentant. And it's because of his blood, not because of, we just have to learn to be humble and that we completely need him to cleanse us. And every person has to come to that point at some point in their life. That's his work. And and uh, if, if you don't get that here, then that's going to be the work that's done in you in the world to come. You're either going to continually still be coming towards him or you're going to be uh end up in a in outer darkness you know the son of perdition but i just wanted to add to it and you know it's not like we're we're saying okay you've got to hold the book of mormon up or you're holding the doctrine and covenants doctrine and covenants up the the idea with section 76 that i've come to is that when you compare all these scriptures and you see that the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 76, actually teaches to either you're with God or, or you're not. We've misread it, and then we've taught it based on oral traditions and oral understandings of what we think it says. And even as we've demonstrated in this podcast, uh, when we've gone through it, the, the Doctrine and Covenants is saying the same thing. We've just had this misunderstanding, most of which cropped up in the time of Nauvoo when polygamists, you know, and, and certain people who ended up going west were promoting this idea of infinite levels of salvation. And the, what they were doing was actually including this idea of polygamy into that. If you want to be in the celestial, well, you got to keep these other little things yeah. and you got to have your spiritual wives and all this stuff. Well, we, we never sorted out some of these messages that came from there and they were just misreading section 76 as well. Read, read a, a couple of, I don't know if it's a class last week or the week before, or maybe it was on the podcast, but the section in the doctrine and covenants that chase chastens the church 
for already leaving the fullness of the gospel, oh, which is the book of Mormon. Yeah, that's in section 83. 83 yeah. 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 So um, I'll turn to it here. This, uh, so what year is this? It's, like, it's 1832. It's, so the Book of Mormon published in 1830, and this uh, ink probably wasn't quite dry on the Book of Mormon yet, and they're already being chastised for, um, for forgetting this. Uh, so... Um, where is it? Yeah. Well, while you get that, two years after the Book of Mormon printed, Doctrine and Covenants Revelation says, um, "You've already left the fullness of the gospel, which was contained in basically in the in the Word of the Book of Mormon in the Bible." And so you have to say, "Well, what what did they leave? What were they leaving? What?" instructions what truth what um you know what doctrine were they leaving already yeah so it's uh section 83 8b is is one of them where um just to just to pinpoint the scripture first and then we can talk about it uh you it says this condemnation rests on the children of zion even all they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent remember the new covenant even the book of mormon and the former commandments which i've given them not only to say, but to do according to that which I have written. And so I think it's everything, Mike. You know, I, I'm i becoming, it's not like, I have nothing to hide. I, I fully believe what the Book of Mormon teaches is what was supposed to keep us from stumbling. And yet there were, there were wicked men. There, there have been people who've had their faith misguided forever, but God gave us this tried and true map. He says, no, this is what I want you to understand. It's right here in these pages. The Nephites wrote about it. Just understand it. Teach this. The The three main things about, you know, any religion or who the, who God is, you know, or, or who the God is and, and what, <clears throat> how come we're not with him anymore? You know, why we're separated from him and how to get back from him. And, and these ideas which are kind of central to almost any religion, when we look at what we've done is God said every single writer of the Book of Mormon states and verifies that they speak plain, first of all, and then they say, and I want you to know that the Creator, the Infinite One, the Eternal One, took on flesh and blood and came and lived like you so we could be subject to Him. Every single writer says that. And I've got a document at Restored Gospel where you can read that. But in light of that truth, what do we do? You, you can go to website upon website, and they, they quote other places, and they'll say, well, we believe in three distinct beings and this and that and the other. I just came across the, – the reason I'm like I feel so much more I, – I want this message to go to Israel. is like I got a, a email just this week, and I think I sent you this picture uh, from one of these letters from these people in Israel who believe in Jesus Christ – and they're already saying, you know, we've refuted this idea that the Gentiles and other people are preaching that there were like three gods in the New Testament. They, they don't have this, they don't have this concept that we Gentiles have turned it into because we don't understand the language of their day. This is why I think it's so important we begin to understand the culture and the climate and the language that the the Hebrew Scriptures came from. So when we when we argue about things, we realize sometimes we're arguing about things that we shouldn't be because it's just simply our lack of understanding of their mentality when they wrote it. Nevertheless, this whole Godhead idea is this thing of our own creation because God is saying, now I understand where it can come from, 
But this Book of Mormon were given never, never implies that there were three separate beings and there, you know, three gods are one. This whole idea of God is one from them was he is one in many qualities. But so the first thing is who God is. The Book of Mormon clearly defines God and Jesus Christ. God was the Father spiritually. He took on flesh, became Jesus Christ. That's why Abinadi died for stating that he will take on flesh. But the second aspect is this whole idea of salvation. The Book of Mormon teaches these parallels, which God taught the men who wrote this, that you salvation means your sin is removed, and if you're broken and contrite, Jesus' blood can overcome this justice and wipe away your sin. That's the only legal way in eternity possible. Mm-hmm. And that, that the point is that we have to have our sin removed. Our righteousness is a pile of filthy rags, you know? And, and, and yeah. And if you can mention circumcision, I can mention what Isaiah says. He says, you know, it's like a menstruous cloth is what he compares it to. I mean, if you want to get down to the brass tacks, this is, you know, not, none of this stuff is stuff that um, is, is, is going to be of any value, you know, our works and stuff. They, they simply are evidence of our heart change. And if, and if we come and if, our, if we're humble, that's the change of heart, and we're aware of our sin, then we stand before God saying, you know what? We, we tried hard. We, we believed, and we get the reward that he says, come unto my kingdom, you blessed. You know, lay down here, sit down here with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all these people who, who also tried, right? And, and that's being cleansed by the blood. And then on the other hand, saying living in eternity away from Jesus because you were only so righteous or whatever, you're you're going completely back on what the power of the atonement and the blood does. Exactly. You're missing the whole point of it. It's like it's somehow we had no power to save ourselves at all. And it's like he, like Nephi writes, it's first uh, Nephi chapter four, I think. Uh, or maybe it's seven. It's at the end of the chapter where he says the final state of man, the final state is to dwell in the presence of God and the kingdom of God or to be cast out. And that's, I think that we have to understand, Corey, salvation, what that means, the concept. And the Book of Mormon does that as well, is that it's not, um, you can't be saved because you're in a place away from fire. You're saved because you have a perfect recollection of of your cleanliness, of your cleanness. <laughs> right. And that's, that. the final state of man is not to just to be, uh, if you're looking at it like on a paper, you know, there's a big line in the middle of the paper. Everything above it's heaven. Everything below is hell and fire and brimstone. The final state of man is not just to be anywhere above the line uh, as long as you're not burning. The final state of man is to have perfect cleanliness, to be aware that you're clean, yes. and to have the happiness and joy that comes from being clean, knowing that Christ has wiped away all evil and all sin from your heart and that you were redeemed. Yes. You were redeemed. You were redeemed. You were full of sin and full of uh, darkness, and you've been redeemed. You've been taken away from that. And these are words that we hear all the time in Christianity, but the real story that the Book of Mormon shares with us, why and why that blood has power has to take place in our heart. And as people, we can't, I don't know that that can take place if we could, if we don't denounce the, the idea of what a sinful teaching it is that you can be saved, but apart from God, that's it, blasphemy. It's, it is. It's denying the whole power of God and the whole message of God. You know, I, the, the book of Mormon is so clear on this. Um, notice th- this is from second Nephi six. This is Jacob writing. Okay. He, he says, woe to those that, 
uh, murder and deliberately kill, for they shall die. Woe unto them who commit whoredoms, for they shall be thrust down to hell. Woe unto them that worship idols, for the devil of all devils laugh, delighteth in them. And in fine, woe unto they that die in their sins, for they shall return to God, behold his face, and remain in their sins. And, and this whole this whole idea is standing before God means, A, our sins are removed forever, or B, our sins are retained forever, and, and there's no other difference. To have our sin fully removed means I'm fully capable and qualified, not by anything I did, but because he made it so, <laughs> to, be, to dwell in his presence, to be transformed. And, and everyone's going to live forever in the end. It's just if you live for, with sin you know, in, embedded in your soul forever because it wasn't washed away by his blood, there's, there's no other—you can't be with him. You're cast out. Let me, let me bring up a book that I remember from a long time ago. This just popped into my mind. Do you remember a book in a church called The Precious Angel Message? Oh, I've heard the title. Uh-huh. It was a book of real basic doctrine, and I remember I was dating a girl at a time that was Catholic, and I still remember laying on my bedroom floor, and we were uh, laying there, and the book was in front of us. We were reading it together, <clears throat> and I was trying to— show her as a Catholic why it doesn't make sense that she either go to heaven or hell in the end and that there's an example in that book and it says if you line all the men up in the world from the worst sinner to the most righteous man and you just put your hand right in the very middle and divide and say everybody on this side goes to heaven and everybody on this side goes to hell is that justice is that fairness and it was making the point, no, because the, the dividing line between that man that goes to heaven and the man that goes to hell is just maybe one deed or one little minuscule thing. And that's how it was explaining why there's a need for different glories in heaven and different places. And now, looking back on that, that's, that's blasphemy. That's, you're looking at what determines eternal life as uh, how much righteousness you did, how many good things and not on whether or not you were um, able to become humble, recognize who you are without God, and cry out for his blood to save you. So in other words, putting your hand right down the middle from the from the worst to the, the greatest and saying, you all go to heaven, you all go to hell, that is a story. But the criteria is wrong. It's the not on how many. Wrong. It's not on because all of these people, you can't line up a group of people and say, we're going to rank you from the worst sin to the least sin because God says all of you have sinned and come short of the glory yes. of God. And if yes. in, in me looking down from heaven, you guys are all just spots in the same height. You're just <laughs> right. a bunch of dots that have all sinned and come short of my glory. So you're, you're using your human criteria to decide what's righteous and what's not. And I say there's no filthiness in my kingdom and there's no, there's only righteousness, and you'll never be righteous unless you have on the garments of Christ who atoned for your sin, and that's what cleanses you. So Amen. it's all Amen. in or all out. Amen. And and the difference between being able to get that, that's grace. You know, His grace that is a. He wants to apply the mercy, but the law states the eternal law. He can only do it to those who are humble and and repent. And so, like you say so well. We've turned it into this criteria, which doesn't exist in the sense that, you know, you think if that was the, the dividing line based on our works, well, what was the in, intent 
infinitesimal difference between Joe's work who didn't make it and Bob's work who did make it is like there, it almost implies there's this unknown set of rules, which I, I, I love every Mormon person I've ever met, but you guys have to understand you, you treat the gospel like there's this hidden set of secrets that we aren't allowed to know about. And it's in this upper echelon of God's room and glory that he's going to get out someday and read this to us. And, you know, we've got to ascend these heights and they're like, no, 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 no. This is all plain in the Book of Mormon. There is no doctrine that he hasn't given us. He, he, he said, men are instructed sufficiently. That We already read that scripture, mm-hmm. that they can know good from evil. The point is, we're given this freedom to choose good or evil. And in the end, the judgment is based on what our heart really wanted in the end. And you know what? To God in the end, those differences between us are totally black and white. And I don't mean that in a racial sense. I mean, in a sense that, no, it's obvious because contrasted. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a huge contrast. It's not like, Oh, I got to squint to see because there's a lot of shades of gray here. No, it's obvious. And this is why when the scriptures say, Hey, our thoughts are going to condemn us. Our works, we don't need God's condemnation because, you know, even though we're all going to stand before him unworthy, but there's there's going to be a hope that wells within us to feel like, Lord, we tried. You know, we really, really did. And, of course, we fell short. You know, my whole life is a story of falling short when it comes down to it. You know, what do, what real good thing did I have to present, you know, um, you yeah. know for, for that lasted for very long. But the whole thing was in the end. I, I believe my heart has been changed. I, I want to give my life, my time, my service, my words, my heartbeats to doing what I can to share God's word because it's made a difference in me and not just because of what it's done for me. I realize it's the only saving power of salvation. There is no other way, mm-hmm. you know? Well, we, this episode and the one before we, we just, uh, I think we just kind of took a deep breath and especially you, uh, teaching classes and, um, going and presenting the word and, and putting a lot of information out there. And I just wanted to take time to take some of that information, digest it, and, and bring it into how is this affecting me day to day in my life and my experience with God. The Book of Mormon message is meant to save our souls from eternal damnation. It's meant to present the gospel in a clean, easy to be understood. It uses the word plain and precious way so that all of us are instructed sufficiently to come to Christ. Yeah. Uh, we had a great sermon at, at Coburn Road uh, last week about asking questions and the need to ask questions in our life and, and not and the important questions. And one of those questions was, how do I take this light of Jesus Christ and allow it to be turned into the energy of love towards my fellow human being, just like the sunlight is transformed into energy that allows us to physically survive by loving other people, we are seeing the face of God, and we're and we're we're learning who He is, and it's this freeing thing. And uh, we were asked, <laughs> you know, have you taken any any slack or anything for this these thoughts that are contrary to popular teaching of glories? And I thought, well, if I haven't, maybe I need to be more bold in that testimony. If we want to have a changed and a transformed heart, then we have to understand God's plan of salvation for all men. Yeah. And if we don't understand it the way it's presented in the Book of Mormon, and, and we can't continually digest these ideas that you're bringing out, these parallelisms, these justice and mercy, we can't continually say, yeah, that's pretty good, that's interesting, and then turn around 
and believe something that's absolutely in the face of this, it is contrary to this, uh, both of those things can't change your heart. No. Both of those things can't reveal God to you in the way that he really is. Yeah. It's because they're contrary. And if you, I'll just say, if you read 76, the first four or five verses, and don't go any farther, it's very clear that only the sons of perdition are not saved. And the rest of that has to be taken through that lens. And that it says that is the fullness of the gospel. Amen. Jesus Christ has saved, come to save all but the sons of perdition who continually, uh, I guess, based on our conversation, who are con- who continually are enticed by evil and give in to that evil until there is no more left within them. As you, as you read in class uh, yes, last week, the hardening of the heart is those that— it, it, what, it, what was the, the language said? Uh, and, and, and this is—it was something like the Book of Mormon said something like, and this is odd, but their hearts became well, more hard. He said, yeah, it's, he said it's strange to relate. Strange to relate. Yeah, yeah. Bring that, so, bring that scripture up well, real I, quick, Corey. I, uh, strange I, to relate. I thought you were wrapping up and I turned we, my computer off, but it's an Al- Alma, I think it's 21. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. the poor computer guy's got a thumb through the actual have to book. Say that. I have my book open <laughs> the whole time, brother. I know. But, but, but uh, okay, but just, all right, restore gospel and go search this. Strange to relate. But the point being, this, <laughs> you got me. Okay, uh. I admit this, uh, the, the, isn't it interesting that the language is, this is strange to relate, but the people who had known God's word and turned away became worse than the people who they were already the example of how bad you can be. Yes. You know? And how much do we, we love to drive through town and, and look at the person living under the bridge and think what a, what a evil crime filled, you know, detestable person. And yet it's like the people that have known and had the opportunity to know truth and turn away from it are, are eventually you, your heart becomes hard. There's nothing left for God to entice. There's nothing left to be enticed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. the nature of sin. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. We didn't get into, uh, last episode I mentioned prayer. Um, and, and that seems like this simple, too simple that we stumble over it. But I really felt, uh, I shared that, that, just that thought came to my mind, just a whisper of the Holy Spirit can change your whole outlook on the world, yeah. your whole understanding of the world. And I believe that that Holy Spirit comes through prayer, mm. through um, time. So uh, as uh, Peter Cornish, who preached last week, said, um, make sure you're asking questions and ask the right questions and constantly be you know, evaluating where you're at and your walk with the Lord. Um Spend time in prayer. There's certain foundations that you can't get around because your heart, you won't become humble. You won't become aware of your weaknesses without that prayer time. Yeah, I love how we tied humility with God giving us weakness on purpose Mm -hmm. and that we have to recognize that. And that's Mm -hmm. really what this whole life's about is Mm -hmm. realizing um, what a sinful person I am uh, left to my own devices and that the spirit of God in me is my only hope. Uh, but man, when I start thinking that I got to get to heaven out of my own changing and good works and that I'm somehow I'm going to be above or below other people. No, it's the, it's the blood of Christ. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory and he, he cleanses us or, or we're filthy still. Exactly. Exactly. That's the gospel that that's the gospel that has power to change our hearts. Yeah. Exactly. We got to come to terms with the how we've perverted that. It gives us something also I think eternal to hold on to 
no matter what the conditions around us, whether it's in a church or a congregation, you know, the immediate things we've seen in our generation of people um, making choices either for or against what we believe to be God's work. In the end, if you see what the Book of Mormon teaches, the things he gives us to live for are eternal, and this change of heart and the attitude, it, it works. It's a message that works no matter what the circumstance. It's a message that, you know, I, I'm excited and I— I think about the opportunity to maybe share some of this because we're we're going online. And by the way, if you uh, haven't been there, go to Restore Gospel or Restore Gospel Podcast, find the YouTube series, and hit subscribe. You don't even have to watch videos. Now, I wish you would, but it helps us get the word out to other people. And so we, uh, as we are walking each other home, uh, just hope that uh, we can share this word with other people who might have yet to hear this beautiful word of God. Thank you, brother.